he's been teaching the disciples um, on the Mount of Olives and, and he's concluded his teaching and that's where we're going to kind of pick up this morning going into these final events and we find Jesus is trying to turn his disciples' attention towards what is about to happen. So that's what he's going to be trying to do. And, <coughs> excuse me, and as we enter this, this chapter in particular, it's quite interesting for a couple of reasons. And, and I'm going to open that up as we go, because Matthew chooses uh, to, to give it to us in a very particular way that other gospel writers didn't. And I think there's reasons behind that, and we're going to open that up together. But first of all, I want to tell you a little something that, I, uh, that Jenny and I did. Uh, we've been married 15 years this year, but on our 10-year anniversary, um, what I decided that I wanted to do uh, was to do something special for her, to show her just how much I love her and just how committed I am to her. Um, so uh, for a couple of months, what I did was secretly uh, is I worked on a video uh, that kind of compiled the last 10 years of our marriage and like some of the highlights, uh, none of the lowlights, uh, but some of the highlights and some of the special memories and adventures we'd been on. And I put them together in, 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 a, in a video and I finished the video with the words, I still do. As in to say, you know, 10 years ago, I said, I do to you. And I just want to say, I still do. I'm still just as committed to you. I still love you. And, um, and just all those promises that I made 10 years ago, I still mean them now. And then as the video finished and, you know, she was crying and, um, you know, we were thinking about putting it forward for an Oscar. Um, the... <laughs> There was a knock at the door, and I had arranged uh, a babysitter just on time, and we just, we'd put Hannah down for a nap, it was the middle of the day, and there was a knock at the door, and I'd arranged a babysitter, and we went out, we drove five minutes uh, from our home, and believe it or not, there was the world's smallest chapel five minutes from our home in Canada, so I've got a picture of it to show you, the world's smallest chapel, and... Um, and when we got there, I'd arranged for a minister friend of mine to be there. And it was just me and her and him, and we renewed our wedding vows together in the world's smallest chapel. I know. Why am I telling you that story? Because, obviously, I want Husband of the Year Award. There's <laughs> no competition. Um, I get that every year, anyway. But, um, no, that's not why I'm telling you. I'm telling you that story because it was my best attempt at making an outward expression of my thoughts and feelings that were going on inside. It was my best attempt to do that. It was the best thing I could think of doing. And, 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 the, and the story that we're going to look at today, it, it's, it, it's an outward expression, not towards a spouse, but towards Jesus. It's their best expression that they could come up with in order to love the person in front of them. And Matthew really cleverly sandwiches it between two other stories, two other moments of betrayal and evil. So let me just pray real quick, and we're going to read from Matthew 26, verses 1 to 16. Father, just thank you for this morning. We thank you, Lord, for our time of worship. We thank you, Lord, for our church family. But Lord, we thank you for your love for us. Father, I pray as we open up the Scripture together that we would have our eyes open and our ears open to you. 
Lord, that our hearts would be willing to surrender before you today. And anything that you want to deal with us in us, to, in, in us today, Lord, help us through the power of your spirit and through the truth of your scripture to be open to you transforming us. Everybody said? Amen. Okay. Uh, Matthew 26, 16 says this. It says, when Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his, the things he just said was the teaching on the Mount of Olives, remember? He said to his disciples, as you know, the Passover is two days away and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas. And they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. While Jesus was in Bethany, in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why the waste? Why this waste? They asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always be with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did, did it to prepare me for burial. Truly I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will, will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve the one called Judas Iscariot, <coughs> excuse me, went to the chief priest and asked, what are you willing to give me if I delivering, deliver him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Okay, so um, like I said, Jesus has just finished teaching and he's trying to snap his disciples into what is going to come. The Passover festival is two days away, and he tells them that the Son of Man, <coughs> you're all coughing, I'm coughing, um, the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. And this is one of the first things that Matthew kind of jumps into here. He goes into this scene, he drops us into the scene of uh, the house of the, of, of the Jewish leadership, and he looks at them first, and then we're going to look at two of the people that are in the close circle of Jesus' followers. They are uh, among those who are able to be close to Jesus. But we're going to start with the chief priests, with what was um, Caiaphas and in his house, and the fact that Jesus knew that his death was soon. And this is a really important little piece here. So I don't want to jump over this plot to kill Jesus, because I think there's a really significant piece in here for us. And six times, you know, Jesus tells his disciples, directly or indirectly, the fact that his death was coming. And he was going to suffer death at the hands of, hands of men. And that time was coming, and it's, and it's right now. And these details are really important because I think they speak of something much greater that's going on. As we read the accounts of the most, the most powerful, the most influential, the most elite in Jerusalem, and what they plan to do, they, they plan to kill Jesus 
And he gives us the details of what they decide to do. What's the outcome of that discussion? And the debate of when he should die, when we should make that move to kill, to kill him. And as we, we dropped into the picture in the home of, of Caiaphas, he's the high priest. Oh, thank you very much. And he's become the leading antagonist, really. He's, he's become the leading uh, the leading person in this story at this moment that's almost embodying the forces of the religious elite. And they're bent on, on, on protecting their own power, on promoting their own personal interests. Jesus has, he's just, you know, he's poked them too much at this point and they've had enough. His home is just southwest of the Temple Mount and it would have been this beautiful palace that spoke of just how important and how significant he was. And at this point, they've tried all that they could think up to hinder Jesus, to trap Jesus, to, they've tried to question his integrity to, or to weaken his influence, tried to trap him in what he teaches. And now their kind of multi-pronged attacks, their plans and all their efforts to foil Jesus and, and to resist his message, the high priest and his, his wicked uh, friends really and colleagues, they decide the only thing that is left that we could possibly do is to kill him, to secretly kill him. However, what they decide is we can't do this during the Passover. And why is it that they can't do it? Well, because first of all, it would have been nothing short of a stupid idea to propose. Jesus's popularity among the people was at an all-time high. And because of the Passover festival, um, you know, Jerusalem is just swollen with numbers. There's loads of people there to celebrate the Passover festival. And um, just a few days earlier, in, in, in chapter 21, which we'll come back to at the end of the series, um, Jesus had ridden into Jerusalem on a donkey. And, and people, crowds are shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. They, they're welcoming him. His popularity is sky high. And of course... Um, to arrest Jesus publicly, there was a huge chance they thought of, well, well, there'll be a riot. People will turn on us. They, they, they really like this Jesus. They, we're really worried about what might happen if we do arrest him at this point. So the plan is, play it smart, play it cool. And when the Passover celebration's finished and the Jews have returned to their homes from wherever they've come from, that will be our time to strike and we'll get him. We'll just wait and we'll get him. But you see, Jesus' plan is different, isn't it? Jesus has already told the disciples when it's going to happen, when the Son of Man would be handed over. That's Jesus. When he's going to be handed over. And it tells us of something really important. You see, regardless of what these wicked men have decided to do, they're twisted, they're evil, selfish purposes, driving what they decide they're going to do, no matter their influence or their authority over the common people, no matter their status in Jerusalem, what they decide is outside of God's sovereign will and outside of his timetable. Nothing can happen outside of God's will or his timetable. And, and you see, God is the one Jesus is the one controlling the narrative. He's the one who is in charge of what is about to happen. They might feel powerful. They might feel wise. They might feel like they have everything sewed up and know what they're going to do and when they're going to do it. But Jesus is the one who is in control of the situation. And in John 10, 17, 
Um, there is a slide for this. The, Jesus says this. He says, the reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. And listen to this. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. In the run-up to the crucifixion and the resurrection, <laughs> what we find is that although Jesus is the lamb and willing to lay down his life as a, as a sacrifice, there is never a moment that he is not in control of the narrative. There is never a moment that he is not in control. And what about you in your life? What about as followers of Jesus, when we come to those moments in our lives where we feel totally out of control? And it might be that we believe in moments, we believe lies that the rich, the powerful, the greedy, the evil of this world, the dark forces that we're up against, we fight not against flesh and blood. We think that all of a sudden that, man, I, I feel like I'm out of control here. I feel like, I feel like God, where are you? And actually the truth is, the promise is, is that God is sovereign. He is sovereign over your life. He is the one who reigns and rules. When you get sick, seriously sick, or a loved one becomes sick, God is in control. When your car breaks down and you think, I can't afford to fix it, God is in control. When you get made redundant from your job, God is in control. When someone spreads gossip about you that's not true, God is in control. When a loved one dies and you're heartbroken and torn, God is in control. When a friend betrays you and you feel abandoned and alone, God is in control in that moment. When your bank balance is empty, God is still in control. And the reality is that if we really believe that God is in control, it changes how we react to these situations. There's never a moment that Jesus isn't in control of the narrative in, in the run-up to his crucifixion, his resurrection. And then the resurrected Jesus in Revelation 1, 17 to 18, he says this, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Jesus says, do not be afraid. Why? Because he is in control. Him. Jesus' Jesus's prediction would be the correct one, not the wisest and the most powerful in Jerusalem. His prediction. And then we move on to these two people. They're both part of the inner circle of Jesus. One is named as a disciple. Um, but there's this woman who pours this perfume on Jesus. Uh, we know from the other Gospels that it's Mary, none other than Mary. And, uh, and she is the sister of Lazarus and Martha. And in contrast, and what we see is a contrast in these accounts. We see Judas, who would betray Jesus. 
And this moment that Matthew tells us about, this is the really interesting part about this, is that this moment that Jesus tells us about with Mary and pouring the perfume on Jesus' head, this actually happened earlier in the story. This isn't actually the moment that it happens. And notice, Matthew doesn't start this, um, this story with, and meanwhile, while, while those chief priests and um, met in, in Caiaphas' house. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, meanwhile, or whilst they were meeting. What he says is he starts with, in Bethany, while Jesus was in Bethany, home of, home of Simon the leper. He just tells us, and it's, it's a, an account that has happened earlier. We know that from early, other Gospels, um, that Mary, this, with this perfume in the house of Simon the leper, it happened six days before the Passover festival. And when we look at what John says, he says that it actually happened the Saturday before Jesus makes his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. So why would Matthew kind of push the pause button on the storyline in the moment and give us this flashback to what happened earlier? Well, I think a couple of things. Um, first of all, I think it had a lot to do with maybe Matthew trying to communicate the reasons why Judas would betray Jesus and, and trying to explain just maybe what was going on in his thinking and in his heart in that moment. Um, we, maybe it was the final tipping point for Judas where he thought, well, that's it, I'm, I'm going to go now. Maybe that's, maybe that's what tipped him over the edge. We don't know. But Judas Iscariot, it tells us in John's Gospel that he's the one who really, uh, he, he really uh, was against what Mary had just done and pouring out this perfume. It say, he says, why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? And then John says, hey, just so you know, <laughs> he says, it's worth a year's wages but he didn't say that because he was worried about the poor and we could have given that money to the poor. What he says is he didn't care about the poor, but because, John says, he was a thief. As a keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. John tells us that. So maybe Matthew's trying to share with us what's going on with Judas in that moment. But also, secondly, I think, it's for that pure side-by-side -side comparison. That unbelievable contrast between Mary and Judas. So let's talk a little bit about Mary before we move on to Judas. So it's a little odd, I've got to be honest, to pour perfume on people's heads. I think today that would be like GBH, I don't know. But like, you know, just to kind of take a big pot of perfume and there you go. Don't you smell nice, right? I mean, but th this is what Mary does. It's a little odd. But Jesus, it says, he's relaxing at the table. He's reclining at the table. And Mary walks over with uh, some perfume. It's, it's actually nard. The type of perfume is nard. It was incredibly expensive. Like, I can't, I can't tell you how expensive it was. It's the oil taken from a flowering plant. It's actually part of the honeysuckle family. It's found in India or Asia. And it was acquired at great cost. Like, really, really expensive. In fact, uh, she grabs this alabaster jar and we're told it's worth 300 denarii. It's, it's, it's worth basically a year's salary. In the UK today, that would be 25,000 pounds. So imagine just 25,000 pounds, like just carrying this jar of perfume, this nard. And she brings it over. And we know from other accounts that it wasn't just his head, it's, it's his body, it's his, it's his feet. 
Mary, what is Mary doing? Like, what is she doing in this moment? Like, they're just chilling out. Um, and, and, but yet she is announcing and demonstrating her devotion and her love to Jesus. It's this outward expression. I don't know how to outwardly express this other than just to do this radical thing. It's the outward expression of what's going on, my thoughts, my feelings, my emotions in this moment. I want to outwardly express to you what's happening. It was the best that she could do. See, Mary, she loved Jesus. The Jewish leaders, they may reject him. Judas Iscariot is about to sell him and the disciples might desert him. But Mary, she loved him. And she wouldn't falter. And the perfume that she uses, this nard, you see, it's fit for a king. That's, that's where it was usually found. This, this perfume was normally found in palaces. She knew it was fit for the king. She knew it was fit for Jesus, Israel's true king. And like the images of, uh, in history of kings being anointed with oil, and it's poured onto their heads, that's what she does to this king. She pours it onto his head. In the book of Song of Songs, I know you've all looked at it because it's a great book. This, the book of Song of Songs, there's this beloved bride of Israel, of, of Solomon. Uh, and she describes her love for the king of Israel in the same way. She said, in Song of Songs 1 verse 12, she says, While the king was at his table, my perfume spread its fragrance. The, the word perfume translated in Hebrew is the same word for nard. While the king was at his table, my, the smell of nard spread its fragrance. Recognizing that this isn't just a king, he is the king. Such devotion to Jesus, such love for him, such worship, recognizing him for who he is. And Matthew places this love story right here. This is where he chooses to put it just to help us digest what it means. In the next two chapters, Jesus will be betrayed by Judas. He will be rejected by the Jewish nation. He will be denied by Peter. He will be abandoned by the other disciples. He will be condemned by the Sanhedrin. He will be crucified by the Romans. He will be taunted by passers-by. He will be insulted by criminals. And worse of all, his heavenly Father will turn his face away from him. Yet in this moment... Mary pours out her devotion, recognizing who Jesus is and what he is here to accomplish. And then finally, we're left with this contrast of Judas. He has made up his mind to betray Jesus. He will hand him over to the chief priests. He approaches the chief priests, it tells us, and he asks them, what, what are you willing to give me if I, if I deliver him to you, if I hand him over to you? This, this opening from Judas, this betrayal of Judas, it gives the chief priests the opportunity that they, they didn't think they had. They thought after the festival is when we're going to be able to do this. Jesus knew. Jesus knew ahead of time. And what is the price that Judas is willing to sell Jesus for? In Exodus 21, 32, it tells us, um, oh, not that one. Uh, 
One before that, never mind. Exodus 21:32. If a bull gores a male or a female slave, the owner must pay 30 shekels of silver. 30 shekels of silver to the master of that slave. 30 pieces of silver is what Judas is willing to take. It is the price of a slave. Jesus to Judas is worth no more than a slave. Do you see the contrast Matthew's trying to paint here? To highlight by pushing these two people together for us, side by side. While Mary generously gives to Jesus, Judas pursues his own greed. And and while the woman's sacrifice is costly, Judas sells Jesus at a bargain price. So where does that leave you and me this morning to reflect and to reflect on that contrast? Well, the first thing I'd say is, when we look at Mary, it's not about becoming more unstable in our relationship with Jesus and doing weird, crazy things that are just over the top and make people's jaw drop. Like, you know, maybe sometimes, but that's not really what it's about. It's not about doing crazy, over-the-top giving that is just bonkers. You know, that's not really what we're trying to pull out of this. Although, if you want to write a check for 25 grand this morning, please do. That would be fantastic. I don't think that's what we're trying to get out of this. I think the question is, for you and for me, the real question is, are you willing to love Jesus with what is most valuable to you? Do we really value Jesus like Mary did? Like truly, deep down? Do we count all that the world has to offer us, everything that the world offers us, as loss compared to Jesus? Compared to knowing him, compared to being in relationship with him, compared to what he brings us. The difference between these two people is that, between these two people who knew Jesus is that one wasn't willing to give up what the world could offer and the other knew that she'd found all that she could find in Jesus, all that she could ever need, all that she could ever want. And she gave up the riches of this world to tell Jesus just how much she adored him. Because compared to Jesus, they were insignificant. Matthew 16, 26, Jesus teaches this. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? See, Judas, he didn't listen to this warning. And Mary understood it completely. And maybe this morning for you, you've kind of been on the outskirts of Jesus, sometimes felt like the inner circle of what's going on. But actually, your devotion to Jesus, it's always kind of been, "Eh, I'll see what the world gives me first before I make my mind up. Let me tell you that the world can offer you nothing in comparison to Jesus himself. He offers you the free gift, the free gift of salvation if you would only believe in him and declare him as Lord and Savior. He offers you life to the full, right now. Freedom from the things that hold you back. Anxiety, worry. The God that we've been talking about that is always in control is the God that wants to know you and be in relationship with you now. 
And all you have to do is simply accept this free gift and say, Jesus, I accept you as my Lord and Savior. And I believe that you went to the cross and you died in order to be the Lamb of God, to be the sacrifice, to take away my sin so that I can have a new life in you. Not just that, that you rose from the grave in order that I can have resurrection, resurrection life now, that I can truly be at peace that when, when I die, I'm going to go on into eternity with you, with my heavenly Father. He offers you everything now and for eternity. The world has nothing to offer in comparison to Jesus. I want to invite the band to come up and if we could stand and we're going to pray.